Well, good evening. It's good to be here with you and to be continuing in our study uh, in Philippians. Uh, if you'll turn with me to Philippians chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 27 through 30 tonight. And I'll give you a second to turn there and um, tell you that I, I, I love doing these sermon series and getting to preach as part of a, a group and, and preach behind other people that you know and love. And the, the good part of it is you get to share in that with them because you know you're studying generally the same scripture that they are. So you have a group of people studying the same scripture, praying over that same scripture, pouring over it. But the, the bad part is sometimes the people who come before you, sometimes they, they present some material that maybe you were hoping to pull out of there. So tonight I will be quoting Garth a little bit. Uh, and I, I told him about this. I, I was feverishly writing notes uh, on verse 21 as he was preaching that I told him I really appreciated uh, what he had to say. So we'll, uh, I, I will be uh, using that here as we, uh, as we get to... Um, one of the points later on. So if you have uh, found your place, uh, let's, let's read, and I'll be reading out of the, uh, the ESV this evening. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them that they're of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, we thank you. For this day, we thank you for allowing us to be here in your house, Lord, studying your word together, singing praises to you together, hearing about the needs in each other's lives, Lord, not, not just the needs, but also the praises. We thank you, Lord, that you have brought us together as a body of believers. We pray, Lord, that you would be with us now as we study your word, remove distractions, Lord, from our minds and from our hearts, and we pray, Lord, that you would guide us as we study your word. We ask all this in Christ's name, amen. So as we look at the scripture tonight, I, I have titled this sermon, Standing Firm and Contending for the Faith of the Gospel. And I like to ask questions, and since we're in a sanctuary and we can't really do a back and forth, I like to ask questions and then answer them. It's the best way to get the right answer I have found. Uh, so if, if, we, if we look at standing firm and contending for the faith of the gospel, we're doing that in light of opposition and persecution. If we were just contending for the faith of the gospel and there was no opposition, it would be pretty sweet, right? It would be pretty easy to be a, a Christian telling other people without fear of facing rejection. We might consider that to be the best case scenario. We're going to share our faith and we don't have to worry about any sort of rejection or opposition. The people are always going to receive it well and want to know more. Wouldn't that be great? But the world we live in is not like that, right? So there are some things that, that Paul is writing to the Philippian church here and also to us that I think I, I want us to, uh, to, to think about the things that, uh, that we need to, need to do as we face opposition, the things that we need to think through. How can we prepare ourselves? So tonight I want us to see that we must first be prepared, that we must strive together that we must not be afraid, 
and that we must remember that salvation and suffering are granted and guaranteed by God. There's not going to be an easy road for us as we walk the Christian life. So first, we must be prepared. Looking in verse 27 again, it says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm. Now, as Paul is writing this to the Philippians, remember that he has been to Philippi previously on a missionary journey. And if we look back in Acts and we read about what happened on that uh, missionary journey, we'll see that it wasn't all smooth sailing, no pun intended for Paul, right? Uh, Paul and Silas on their first missionary journey encounter a woman who is possessed by a demon. And that demon enables her to tell the future or to see into the future. And she is owned by some men who use that talent to make money. And when Paul and, and Silas encounter this woman, they cast the demon out in the name of Jesus Christ. Wonderful thing for her. Her owners find that to be very disheartening because their way of making money is now gone. And they have Paul and Silas not only arrested, but stripped, beaten, and thrown into a jail in stocks. If you're familiar with the story, you know that there is uh, a violent shake and the doors of the jail are opened. And before the guard can harm himself, Paul and Silas are able to talk to the jailer. God is working in the situation that Paul and Silas were in. He's working through their persecution, working through the, the difficulties that they were in. And as a result of that, the jailer and his household is saved, baptized, and the gospel is spread in Philippi. So as Paul is writing to the Philippians, as he's writing to the people in Philippi, he understands what it means to contend for the faith of the gospel in the face of opposition. And he's telling them because they would have been familiar with that account of what happened to Paul when he was there originally. So he's hopefully not telling them anything new that they're going to face opposition, but he is, he is trying to trying to get them to understand that, as he says, whether, whether I'm able to come see you or not, he wants them to stand firm. Uh, the first word in, in the uh, verse 27 is only. And we may also look at that as be sure to, or make sure that, or as a matter of first importance, let your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And if you're asking, so what exactly how would we define that gospel of Christ? I'm so glad you asked that question because we're now gonna let Paul tell us a little more about that from Colossians 3, 12 through 17. And he does so in a way where he talks about putting things off, so putting off sin, putting off worldliness, and putting off the flesh, and putting on the things of God. So Colossians 3, 12 through 17 says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So if you weren't clear on what it looked like for someone to, to put on or to have as a 
only or a manner of life that was first or foremost, that is a really good description. Now, Paul obviously tells in other places in Scripture about things that Christians should be known for. We have fruits of the Spirit and and, and other things like that. But I think this is a really good good picture of what Paul is talking about. So as he says, whether I come and see you or am absent, he wants to hear that they're standing firm. Paul has placed his future entirely in God's hands as he writes to them while he is in prison. And as Garth preached last Sunday night, the preceding verses show us that while Paul's hope is to return, to be with them, to preach and teach and minister among them, he is well aware that there might be other plans on his life. And in fact, he actually has a longing to be present with the Lord in heaven. As Garth said in in his sermon last Sunday night, he said, Paul has been talking about living for Christ in all circumstances. And in verse 21, where he says, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, it's not a morbid obsession with death. Paul's not hyper-focused on death. He's not concerned at all about death. And why is he not concerned about all about death? It is because he has a heartfelt desire to be present with the Lord And as much as he has a desire to be with the Philippians and be able to minister among them, he knows that it is far more desirable to be with Christ. And to be with Christ is to be in heaven. And if he knows that he is going to be with Christ in heaven, but God says, not yet, wait, I have more for you to do, then it is more needful for him to stay and for him to continue his work that God has put forth for him here on this earth. So it's not a morbid obsession with death. It's actually a right understanding of life. As Paul sees things, he wants more than anything else to be with Christ, to be able to be in his presence in heaven. For Christians today, if we have a right understanding of what it means to follow Christ, we will know that God has a purpose for our life here while we're here on earth. I love hearing Pat talk about his understandable desire to share the gospel. And I would say, I hope that we all feel that same way. I hope that we all have a desire within us because of Christ working through us that we can't help but look for opportunities to share the gospel, that we can't help but pray for opportunities to share the gospel. And we do so until we go to the better thing, which is ultimately to be in heaven with with Jesus Christ. As a parent, having your children be able to have a right understanding of things is important. Having them to be self-sufficient is important. And I think that's also something that Paul is talking about here. He wants to be there with them and he wants to help them, but he can't. I have six children, as many of you know. You heard tonight I have my, my oldest son's turning 13. My daughter uh, is gonna be driving soon. And as we start to work out who's going to be how old when this person gets into what grade, it quickly becomes where my daughter now has grandchildren and my, my youngest one's not even out of the house yet, okay? And, and I, I, I have some fear and apprehension. That's usually when I reach for a paper bag and, and Liz is telling me it's okay, it's years ahead, right? But my desire for them as a parent is that I want my children to be prepared to live in this manner of life that we have been discussing. I want them to be prepared so that no matter what they face, no matter the persecution, no matter the obstacles or the rejection they face for the cause of Christ, that they will be able to not only survive that, but thrive in that. That they will find that 
ground of the gospel, something firm that they can stand on. Because that is the only thing that will not shift like sand beneath their feet. And I won't be able to be there, right? I won't always be able to catch Caleb from running down the hallway and falling on a truck and getting stitches in his eye. I couldn't do that and I was right there. There are hopefully all going to launch successfully from the house eventually. And when they do, I will praise God, but I will pray to God that he keeps them grounded on the gospel. When they face persecution, when they face opposition, when they're having just the best day ever, I hope that they are always grounded on the gospel. So as we talk about preparing our children for that, we need to be actively teaching them these things. A perfect jump shot is not something that is just born and they just do it. I've seen some great jump shots this year as I'm coaching sixth grade basketball and I've seen some not so good jump shots on the sixth grade team. It's something that has to be taught, which is why parents, when we teach our children, we're actually teaching our children whether we're teaching them or whether we're not. Teaching should be active though, we should be teaching them. And as we teach them, we're trying to prepare them and as we're trying to prepare them, I want us to think about maybe a couple, a couple things here with being prepared. So in sports, we prepare by practicing. We, pr- we practice and we do repetition and we learn so that when it comes time for the game, we can perform. And thinking about the military, when the military does their maneuvers and, and drilling, they do so to develop discipline and cooperation so that when it's time to go to war, they can perform. If you have company over, you may say, company's coming and it's time for people to move into action and get busy preparing the house. But how successful is that if mom is the only one who is preparing? Is it not bad for one person on a basketball team to know the plays, to know the defensive sets, and understand what they're supposed to do with the ball in this particular situation. That's a bad spot. And it's also a bad spot for one guy on a battlefield to be the only one who knows what direction to shoot. So as we talk about preparing, I want us to now think about striving together. In verse 27, it says, in one spirit, in one mind, striving, set uh, side by side for the faith of the gospel. Again, striving and contending are not passive words. If you have two boxers in a ring, hopefully they're both striving and contending because if they're not, somebody's gonna get hurt, right? It requires active participation from all members and in this case, we're talking about the church. As Paul writes to the Philippians, he's writing to them to tell them to contend. It's not written to a person, it's written to the church. So the idea here is that they would be all actively participating, striving together, side by side with one spirit and one mind. My boys often tell me, when we ask them to clean up for company, that they're striving together in the room, that they're working on the room to get clean. And when Liz or I happen to casually stroll by the door and you know look and see what's going on, many times they're striving by sitting. You can't strive by sitting. You can't clean a room by sitting. You can only do this. Whatever is within this reach is going to get clean. So they have a nice clean circle they're sitting in, but the rest of the room is a mess. Striving, contending, active words, and I tell them, you can't do that, get up, you have to get moving and be active. And the same is true for us as a church. Our church cannot sit inside these walls and expect for the gospel to leak out into this community by osmosis. They're not gonna hear us singing on a Sunday morning and think, man, you know, they really inspired me this morning. I could hear them singing over the traffic in the roundabout. No, 
It takes us going out and being active and involved and going forward with the gospel, contending, knowing that we're going to face opposition, knowing that we're going to face people who are going to slam a door in our face if we're going to visit them. And if that's the worst thing that happens, man, you've had a good day visiting. You could be chased off, right? You could have a dog sicked on you. Lots of worse things can happen. I'm using some of these things that people are afraid about here in the US, but we're really not facing anything if we're honest. Fellowship with other believers and church participation is vital as we strive together. You cannot strive together unless you are together. Let's say that again. We can't strive together as a church unless we are together as a church. We want to make the distinction that we do not believe that sitting in a pew on a Sunday morning is salvific. We don't believe that that saves you. But we also believe that for believers in Jesus Christ, that fellowship with, worship with, and care for one another is of vital importance for the church. To continue with the sporting and military examples that I gave a minute ago, I want us to think about these teams that traditionally perform the best or or teams that work the best together. And some might say that that team is the one that has the most talented player or maybe the team that can pay for their recruits. I mean, recruit the best players. In reality, it's, it's the ones that know how to work together. They have a system. They know how to work together. They communicate. They cooperate. They do all the things that are necessary for people to work and coexist. And they do so because they have one mind. And they move sometimes as though they have one body. They know where people are going to be. And that preparation and that cohesive working as a team is what we should see from the church. We have been given our battle plan, church. Go ye therefore into all nations, right? We're to go forth. We're to spread the gospel. We're to love and care for one another as we love and care for our community. Loving God, loving people. Sounds familiar, right? The perfect example of this, I think, is if you look in 1 Corinthians 12, and we're not going to go through all of this, but in talking about the church being one body with many members, each person having their own role to play, and when they're all working and in unity, that's when the body performs its best. And we know that the, the head of that body, which the body is the church, the head of that is Christ. So, you're not alone. We are with a group. We are with a unit. We are with the church. There is safety in numbers, so we must not be afraid. Do not be frightened, verse 28 goes on, and do not be frightened by anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction and of your salvation and that from God. So Paul has seen a lot in his missionary journeys, and when he says, do not be frightened by anything or anybody who opposes you, that's some strong statement right there. Because he has seen a lot. He has gone through a lot. And he is telling them, do not be afraid. In Matthew 10, 28-31, we have another exhortation to not fear. It says, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy the body, or can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more valuable than many sparrows. As I kind of teased a little bit about our 
uh, fearfulness of, of witnessing and going out into the community and putting ourselves out there as a Christian and sharing our faith with others, we have this, this fear of being rejected. And it's gotten to the point, at least it seems in the United States, where people can be offended by almost anything. You can have a bumper sticker on your car, it offended me. I need, my, I need my, my dome of solace, my little tent that I can pop up and stand inside, and it can be a completely you know, oppression, uh, offensiveness-free zone for me to exist. We have safe spaces on college campuses now where you're not allowed to have any sort of uh, offensive speech, and we're not talking about foul language, we're talking about, in many cases, the truth. So our frame of reference, again, is skewed, and in the United States anymore, it seems like the most offensive thing that someone can do is to simply speak the truth. We do need to be careful, though, how we use truth. We must not use truth simply as a weapon to attack or to try to provoke or incite some sort of negative response or to intentionally be hurtful. We need to make sure that when we're speaking truth, we're doing so in love. Never being ashamed of the gospel, as Romans 1.16 would tell us, because it is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. But as we speak that truth, we want to speak that truth in love, and we want to make sure that we are not sitting in God's place of condemnation over anyone. A few years ago, I had a very, very uncomfortable conversation with someone while we were going to lunch. This, this person and I worked together. Um, they were they're a, a homosexual, and at the time there was a lot of press about religious groups that were um, protesting and picketing uh, the same-sex marriage uh, movement that was going on. And while we're in the car in a trapped, confined space on our way to lunch, she asks me, she knew I was a Christian, she knew I went to a Baptist church, and she asked me what I think. Now, as I sat there, I thought, I have to speak truth, and I can't say it. So I'm gonna tell her what the Bible says. Why is that safe? Because the argument is not with me, the argument is with what God has said. So we proceeded to have a very loving conversation about what the truth of God's word says. And at the end of me speaking, by the grace of God, she did not explode, she understood what I was talking about, and we were able to have many more conversations as time went on, that was kind of the opening. Now, I don't have a happy ending where she converts and is a Christian and all of that, but the door was at least open for us to have open, truthful conversations, done so with care and with love. And that's what we should seek to do as we speak truth and we share the gospel with others. We need to do so not just in a Bible-thumping condemnation way. People do need to hear the truth, but they also need to hear that with God there is grace and there is mercy and there is love. But there is also judgment and there is also condemnation for those who do not believe and trust in him as Lord and Savior. So the verse continues on. It says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. The example that I want us to, to look at is there's actually a couple. I, I think when we tell the story of David and Goliath, sometimes we maybe miss what may have been going on on the battlefield. The Bible's not clear on this, but I'm trying to imagine a guy who, by some accounts, is around nine feet tall, okay? So think of a guy who could stand with his head in the net of a basketball goal, uh, with all of the armament that he had on and 
some little dude with a sling and some stones comes out to meet him on the battlefield. But I think maybe there was something in David's eye. It wasn't fear. It was confidence. Because as he spoke to Goliath, he did not speak to Goliath, uh, at least from the, the accounts that we get in the Bible, we don't get the sense that David was fearful. He had confidence in God, not confidence in his own ability. He had confidence in God. And I wonder if that was maybe unnerving. And the example that we do have where we have some thoughts, I want us to look, or, or, or we'll look quickly at Acts 4.13 where we have Peter and John answering questions about why they are preaching Christ. And it's, verse 13 says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus this boldness, this knowledge came from God through Jesus Christ. The same is obviously true of us today. If we are able to accurately explain the gospel of Christ and witness and talk to someone, it is not simply because of my knowledge. I'm relying on what's in the Bible as I share. And that is the only way that it is gonna have any power because my words do not but the power is in the words of Christ Jesus and the words of God. So as we're sharing, we need to not rely on our own abilities but rely on the power that comes through our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So we've looked at being prepared, striving together and not being afraid. And finally, I, it's important for us to see that salvation and suffering are granted and guaranteed by God. And by granted, we mean they are gifts of God. Now, I think when we talk about salvation, lots of us can say, salvation is a great gift of God. Oh, we think about our sin, and we think about all that Christ has done for us, and just the weight of that. We, we, we generally have lots of conversations about the greatness of that gift that God has given us of salvation. And we think about that as a tremendous gift, as the greatest gift ever given, right? We celebrate that, especially through the Advent and Easter seasons, but we, sh we think of that as the best gift ever. How many of you, when you're experiencing some sort of persecution, say, greatest gift ever, God, thanks for that. Appreciate being persecuted for trying to talk to somebody and now they, you know, they don't want to have anything to do with me, or no, I don't think we do that, do we? But it is, it's a gift. And why, why should we potentially look at that differently. It says uh, in verses 29 and 30, it says, for it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ. Ah, there's the difference. It's not, it is for my good, but it's for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So suffering for the sake of Christ isn't just suffering, it's suffering with a purpose. And we know that that purpose is good for Christ and also good for us somehow. We may not always see it when we're going through it, but suffering, if we're suffering for the cause of Christ, is not meaningless. When Paul and Silas were arrested, as we talked about earlier, they had been arrested because they had cast out a demon in Christ's name. When we read the scripture where you have John answering before, or Peter and John answering why they had been preaching Jesus Christ's name. They're suffering or being persecuted because of Christ. And they're able to speak boldly 
And as we saw in the example with, uh, with the Philippian church, the gospel grew because of that. And I think if we look at the history of the church, many times that's what happens. When the church is persecuted, the church grows out of that. And for us as individuals, if you have ever been in a situation where your faith has brought persecution upon you and it was because of Christ and not because you were just a bad person, if it was because of Christ, that should cause growth in your life and hopefully you can see God working through that to open other avenues for you to share the gospel and to see the glory go back to him. As we end tonight, I want us to look kind of where we began with the call to worship, which is 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19. It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you were insulted for the name of Christ, you were blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. But yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Let us be prepared let us work together and strive together as a church. May we not be afraid and may we always remember that God has gifted us and granted us that salvation and the suffering that we may experience. And ultimately, he is working about all things for our good and for his glory. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, we thank you for this day. Again, we thank you for allowing us to be here, Lord. We, we pray that as we go our separate ways, Lord, that you would be continuing to prepare us and help us to work together and seek to love and serve each other, Lord. Help us not to be afraid of the message that you have given us, Lord, because we know that that message is life and death. We just pray, Lord, that you would help us to, to speak truth with love, help us to speak boldly, and give us ample opportunity, Lord, to do so. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.